0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. What's the connection between education and development? My guest today, Dan Wagner, argues that it's past time to move beyond conceptualizing development as simply economic growth.
1: Still, much of the international community is, in my view, hung up on rates of return that look at human development as predictors of what they think is important, rather than human development as its own dependent variable of what comprehensively will provide solutions for people
0: in a world that is fast changing. For Dan, the framework we should be using is learning as development. He calls on social scientists to work towards a Learning Genie Index that not only takes learning seriously, but also prioritizes equity. And we need to build, I think, on
1: a better science, but the the focus of that science on making a difference for those, and to use my labeling, uh, at the bottom of the pyramid. I think that's where I would suggest.
0: Dan Wagner is Professor of Education and UNESCO Chair in Learning and Literacy at the Graduate School of Education, University of Pennsylvania, where he is also the Director of the International Literacy Institute, international educational development program. In today's show, we talk about his new book, Learning as Development, Rethinking International Education in a Changing World. He has also published a new book for UNESCO entitled Learning at the Bottom of the Pyramid. Dan Wagner, welcome to Fresh Ed.
1: Well, great to be with you.
0: So for many people, development is understood through more or less an economic lens. So increases in gross domestic product will help national societies, that sort of view. In your view, though, what are some of the limitations from understanding development as growth in GDP?
1: Right, so I think that's a fundamental question, and that was one of the motivating um, forces for writing this book. It has seemed to me, as well as I think many people, that um, a unique or predominant economic focus on development um, not only was incomplete, but also led, unfortunately, to some very poor choices uh, by the development community and by national governments. Um, so that, for example, if one looks at average uh, gross domestic product across the world, or um, or income levels across the world, one can come to decisions about where to make investments, which type of education. Uh, at what level, as for example, the World Bank has done now ever since its existence, and uh, most or well, many of us sort of joke that every ten years they choose a new uh, rate of return based on uh, return on investment, based on either higher education, secondary education, vocational education, basic education, early childhood is now in vogue, and it keeps rotating over the years and. There is evidence from uh, GDP that you can marshal to support any of these decisions. The problem is that there's no particular uh, reason that we should accept this other than some international experts funded by a few prominent organizations tell us that that's the best assessment. Uh, In fact, uh, in my book, I make the claim that we really should be thinking across the board that it's a mistake to simply pick a slice of the pie and say that's the one you should invest in because that's the one that has the greatest return on investment.
0: So when you mean across the board, you mean looking uh, across all levels of education?
1: Not only all levels of education, but actually across the human lifespan. So um, it is possible to see the world through a unique educational lens – Uh, As you know from my book, I try to see outside of that particular box with a framework that I have suggested in the book that looks at uh, both schooling and out of schooling and very young children at birth all the way through people who are elderly. These are all part of our human uh, population and each makes its own contribution um, and even subtraction from the kind of society that we have. And unless we look at the broad range of humans, I don't only mean here by age, but I also mean, as you know, by context and by culture, uh, we will be um, not only missing the scientific boat, we'll be missing our ability to help different people in different ways rather than what I view as a fairly simplistic analysis that admittedly you can find statistics to support, but doesn't really support our understanding of human well-being.
0: Is this what you mean by human development, the framework of human development? That is
1: what I mean. And in fact, there is a long history. Uh, if uh, you understand uh, the primary uh, disciplinary focus comes out of what people call um, human development or developmental psychology, which starts at birth, some say before birth. But uh, continuing on into the lifespan, you have a very well-known um, academics, uh, and researchers, famously people like Jean Piaget, Jerome Bruner, Ben Bloom, John Dewey, others, Montessori, all of whom, uh, had lifespan perspectives on human development. Um, it isn't, by the way, um, that human development has been ignored by the UN agencies. Certainly. The United Nations Development Program has for almost 20 years had a human development index, which was designed to measure roughly what I'm talking about. But the problem is that that was informed, again, more by indicators that could predict economic development rather than by uh, aspects of human development that are valid on their own. And that is what I'm trying to suggest uh, in this book, that it's not economics as the dependent variable where the independent variable is how much schooling does a person have? Do they read in the mother tongue or in a second language? Um, Do they get a particular kind of nutritional supplement? Still, much of the international community is, in my view, hung up on rates of return that look at human development as predictors of what they think is important rather than human development as its own dependent variable of what comprehensively will provide solutions for people in a world that is fast changing um, so we could talk about that as well
0: yeah I mean it seems like the, the recently the World Bank has put out their human capital index which in a sense furthers that same idea of seeing economic growth and rates of return as the, the primary function of what education is supposed to do
1: right I mean I think that um, I have to give a bit of a wry smile, because there is completely nothing new in the human capital index. The bank invented it 50 years ago, along with some economists. I mean, I do think that there's value in thinking about humans. I appreciate the word human in human capital index. The problem is the word capital and index. But I I do think that there are people, uh, and I don't mean to say that, again, I don't think this is something, I'm not suggesting something that's completely new. There are people who have uh, taken these issues into account. As I mentioned, people in human development, some of the people I mentioned a moment ago who are very well known in the field of human development, one of their limitations, as you probably know, is that uh, most of them rarely looked outside of where they lived. So Jean Piaget mainly worked out of his home in Geneva, Switzerland. He had a couple of students who went elsewhere and did some interesting work in Africa and so on. But basically, these theories are uh, Eurocentric, North American-centric. They have a different purpose. Their purpose was to describe how Euro-American children grow up. Um, That's interesting. And of course, there are people who've looked cross-culturally at these theories, but um, there is hardly anybody who made the step to say, well, how do these theories of human development actually play out in low-income countries? And how do they play out in, uh, what we sometimes call the international development arena? And this is what inspired me to write my book, is that I frankly couldn't find people who would really address that issue. And that's what I sought to do.
0: And what did you find? Well, for
1: one, um, and anybody who wants to read the book will find, is that it's quite remarkable how many very well-informed scientists uh, have um, not invested themselves into thinking about how human development as a science can make a difference in international development. I'd say the one area where this is less true, and it's because it's more recent, is the area of early childhood development. It isn't, of course, people have looked at early childhood for many years. You could go back to Margaret Mead and you could go back to um, others who have, uh, Barry Brazelton and others who've worked internationally, but their goal was the science of human development rather than to invest in young children as a way of thinking through what would happen when they got into school in a low-income country. There is work being done in that area. I'd say it's one of the more exciting areas today. Um, and I'm glad to see that people have been putting resources into that. But again, part of my, I would say, cautionary remark is just because uh, it's an area where people have uh, sort of discovered its importance doesn't mean that it should be the exclusive uh, priority of international agencies.
0: So you call for learning as development. What do you actually mean by this? I mean, you, you, you take this human development idea, but then you, in a sense, stick in the term learning. So how does that fit into this conversation?
1: So one way to think about it is to think about the very important work of Armat Sen, who is one of the best known. He's a Nobel Prize winner. He's an economist born and raised in India and um, has been a significant actor uh, in a number of different fields from philosophy to political science and also into international development. He wrote a book. Um, some years back, a couple decades ago, called Development as Freedom. And uh, you can hear that there are two out of those three words in a title are I share with him. Uh, his was Development as Freedom, and mine is Learning as Development. And it's not by chance. I think he uh, had a very interesting approach uh, to seeing personal liberty as a form of well-being that should be advanced in the world. And he had many followers quite appropriately so. One of the limitations, however, was that he was at base an economist. And so he too was looking through an economic lens. So while I did uh, think of him, he was partly the inspiration for the title of my book. Nonetheless, my book focuses almost entirely on education and learning. So learning as development is different than education as development. And that's the second thing. So while Amartya Sen helped to inspire at least the title and some of the thinking, the point of learning as development is that education is a system that we have created uh, around the world that is largely similar in its inputs and outputs. That is fine, and that is where. I would say, according to my book anyway, about 95% of the intellectual and fiscal resources go into that idea, that is, that education is development in the same way that economics is development. And my claim, of course, is that um, that's not true, Uh, at least not uh, while there is a high correlation between education and learning, um, most of us spend most of our days not in school. Even children spend most of their days not in school. Parents obviously see things a little bit differently. They hope that most of the learning their kids would do would be in school and on target and whatever the teacher is teaching and the national institutions believe should be taught. But the reality is, increasingly, whether it's in the United States or Uganda or Bolivia, is that kids are learning much more autonomously, partly due to the growth of technology, a topic we could could also talk about, but also because the nature of schooling and this is another point I try to make, uh, has simply become much more complicated in the, day, in the days we are in today. Uh, it may come as a surprise to some of the listeners on the show, but you only need to think about, certainly I mentioned technology, which has many inputs that are largely out of our control, whether we're parents or teachers or even ourselves. We're often assaulted by a variety of Inputs that we have little control over or only moderate control over. But it's also true that this sample of people who are in school is no longer the sample that was in school 50 years ago or 30 years ago or even 10 years ago. You go to the Philadelphia school system, we teach 50 languages in our school. That's not a lot. They teach more in Los Angeles. You go to South Africa, 25 different languages taught in Johannesburg. Why is that? Well, one of my chapters is about globalization and migration and climate change. And it's clear that people are moving around. It's not just, let's say, Africans from sub-Sahara moving to Brussels or Paris. Much more common is internal migration. Uh, And any demographer that works on countries around the world will tell you that certainly urban settings in almost every country are showing a greater mix of populations, uh, in part because that's where the jobs are and it's pulling people in. The resources that are available in rural settings are uh, more limited, are driving parents to put their children in schools in urban settings. What that means is that the number of children per teacher has grown tremendously, especially in Africa, but not only. Uh, The complexity of the teacher environment, teachers are finding it more and more difficult to teach, In many classrooms, uh, whether it's Africa or Philadelphia, the teachers don't have mastery of the language or languages that children know and vice versa. Life is more complicated Uh, and especially in the low-income countries, which is the focus of my book, the number of pupils per classroom has grown tremendously, even as education looks like it's improved in the sense that this is where national averages are deceptive. In the As you probably know, the number of children in school in Africa has just about tripled in the last 25 years. Has that made education better? Quite the contrary. Children are learning less on average than they learned 25 years ago. Not because the teachers are worse or the curriculum is worse. Probably not true. But the fact is there are just so many kids in the classroom a teacher can't be effective with all of them. So they are well-accepted statistics. The question is, what do you do about it? How do you take into account this diversity, and that is another area that I try to treat in my book.
0: So, I mean, let's look at that. What would you do about it? Like, if we accept the argument and all of these statistics that the nature of schooling is becoming much more complicated, then if we were to rethink schooling with that framework of learning as development as you propose, what would that look like?
1: Well, um, to me, this means more work on our part as applied researchers, but I think the, the angle of response is well-known. That is, when you have a disparate population, a varied population, you have to figure out ways of um, addressing that population. So if I had five different languages being spoken in my classroom in a part of Johannesburg, I'd have to figure out ways of getting, that, getting an appropriate language input either into the teacher or as supplementary support For instruction and in fact you know some of us uh, in fact one of my projects out of the University of Pennsylvania in partnership in South Africa we have done just that by uh, deploying mother tongue language support in classes where the teacher only knows one of the three languages being taught in the classroom and we supply support and we did in partnership with the South African government in two other languages when the teacher couldn't teach effectively in those two other languages That's just one angle. Uh, Technology can do this kind of thing. Another, uh, which is crucial, and I try to speak about this in my book, is how to look at teacher training. Uh, Much too often, teacher training involves, and I think this is still the majority case in most countries, low-income countries, but also I think in most countries, is to send teachers to some kind of provincial capital or the national capital, on some uh, nice um, week long or two week long uh, experience, uh, sometimes taught by outside experts who speak English or French or Spanish or some international language, or they're being taught by professors who've been in their own country but who've been trained by, let's say, University College London or Institute of Education or, you know, in major metropolises around the world, but where. In fact, what we need to be doing is teaching to the marginalized children. So we have to have a pedagogy that is appropriate for the diversity of kids who are in the classroom. This is not the same thing as um, what we sometimes call either flipped classrooms or child-centered pedagogy. Again, those those are interesting terms. There are interesting things going on, but they miss the boat. And I find um, somewhat frustrating to me is that some of my, my favorite colleagues... Uh, nonetheless are focused on what we think here in America or sometimes in Europe are magic bullets for improving pedagogy when the real issue in pedagogy is addressing the diversity of children and the skills that they bring to classrooms or even the skills that are needed outside of classrooms that we are not taught in typical teacher training programs. There is a lot to be done and uh, if you focus as I try to suggest in my book on the most marginalized and disadvantaged populations, what I call in the book, the bottom of the pyramid. If you focus on learning at the bottom of the pyramid, then you have a different approach to the issues than than trying to find what on average works uh, statistically for some average population compared to another. That is where we miss the boat.
0: So you and I were both in Brussels last month to attend the global education meeting put on by UNESCO which is supposed to sort of look at the sustainable development goals, particularly the the goal on education at SDG 4, and sort of measure and and evaluate the progress towards achieving that goal. I want to know, in your opinion, do you think this idea of learning as development is reflected in the sustainable development goals?
1: Uh, Yes and no. Um, I think in the yes part of the answer, uh, the sustainable development goals are a great improvement over previous goals that we've had and certainly over not having any goals at all. Um, They do put, as you know, uh, a major emphasis on the quality of education uh, and learning in the context of that is, uh, I think, a very positive development. And there are some people uh, who were at that meeting uh, that was in Brussels who did talk about issues of equity in education uh, and I thought that was a uh, positive um, development. It, it was not always the case, so there has always been some uh, serious interest. I think that um, one of the things you learn in a career in social science is that uh, we are limited by the data that we have in front of us, and the data that the United Nations collects or the World Bank collects are typically national level data created either by an international agency or by a national government. Most national governments and international agencies uh, pay some attention. This is part of um, the no part of the answer. Um, the, uh, they pay, I would say, more philosophical attention to we wanna raise the levels of learning of every child in our population but if you look at the data, which was shown at the, this meeting in Brussels, the amount of money invested in the lowest parts of the economic pyramid in low-income countries is far less than in the middle and upper end of the population. And I think that reflects where we also put our emphasis on uh, trying to understand what would make a difference and uh, for these uh, people at the bottom of the pyramid, are, are especially children, and, and that is often, in many countries, a very large number, sometimes the majority um, in some of the poorest countries in the world. So, but these are difficult political uh, programs to adopt at a national and international level. So the, at the national level, ministers of education, uh, it's sort of famously said. Rarely, I think, if you looked it up, somebody once did. I think the average term in office is somewhere between a year and a half and two years. Uh, there's usually at least two ministers for, uh, of education, at least per uh, head of state, per per prime minister, and that's in part because they're often a flash. Schools are often a flashpoint, uh, either teacher strikes or student rebellions or political uh, differences among different groups. uh, It's very difficult to be a minister of education. So ministers tend to go with the flow, which means the dominant plurality of the country, and have a hard time investing in the poorest parts of the population. Um, This then is picked up, I think, in my view, by international agencies, which are trying to come up with ways of thinking about which countries are doing better and less well and that's the the i think another part of my no to the answer of do i think things are going in the right direction with the sdgs i think the sdgs are basically very good but they mainly establish benchmark benchmarks so that countries can be compared with one another that to me is the our major flaw i'm not saying that everybody believes that to be true i have a lot of friends who believe like I do that the real goal should be looking at diversity within countries not between countries. Uh, Diversity across countries uh, simply picks up on the economic differences that already exist and limit or don't limit the kind of support you can have for education but looking within countries you start seeing where countries are making investments and there we could have an impact if we understood this notion of diversity and disaggregation of differences within populations and between populations. Again, I don't think this is a particularly new idea. I mean, people in the United States and in other countries have certainly been concerned. But I think it, with respect to the SDGs, one of the problems of these national goals, national targets, international targets is it pushes one toward uh, national averages rather than into Uh, equity issues within countries. And I think we cannot make progress unless we look at the diversity within countries.
0: One of the big issues that the UNESCO seems to be having right now with the Sustainable Development Goals is simply measuring all of the targets under SDG 4, I think. And so I want to ask you as a social scientist, um, proposing this framework of learning as development how would we even go about measuring it, even within a country, to, to capture that, that issue of equity? You know, How would you go about measuring it if we had sort of a magic wand of data collection?
1: Right. So uh, I'm going to give you, I think, an answer that um, I'd be interested in uh, hearing what um, others might say. Um, in my uh, view, uh, as a person who's been in the social sciences of measurement of what we used to call cognitive development, that is learning across the lifespan and across different content materials, there is a high correlation, very high correlation, between all the different measures that one can use, Uh, whether it's intelligence testing, whether it's math testing and reading testing. The fact is, testing is a very common uh, kind of goal, and no matter which items you put in, you can find that there's a high correlation between how a person scores in one test and how they score in another. The reason why there is such a debate in the world today about which measures to use is that the contents that go into them are very diverse across the world, as they should be. But I think, again, that's where uh, international policy actually puts us, pushes us in the wrong direction. So what I suggested, as you noted in a note to me, is that something like a Learning Genie Index is much more interesting than a, whether we have a particular test. The idea of a Learning Genie Index, we don't have to call it that, but a Genie Index is something that many people are familiar with and that it essentially measures whatever whatever kind of um, economic system you have. It can look at those who have more of it, meaning money, and those who have less of it, whether we're in um, rupees or dollars or whatever. Um, so. What interests me, and we don't have this as yet, is some type of learning genie index that looks at how populations uh, within countries uh, do. You can pick an age and you can pick your sample by mother tongue that they speak or by gender or by uh, economic level and see how gaps are rising and falling over time. To me, this would be more indicative of whether we're making progress than... Uh, measure that was first developed in Princeton, New Jersey, then translated into other languages and then translated into mother tongues by people whose second or third language were those mother tongues. To me, that is far less relevant than knowing uh, whether kids who are in rural Somalia are doing better relative to their peers than they did the year before and whether... A teacher who understands the language that they speak has improved the performance relative to others uh, over previous years. And what that does, at least in principle, and I'm working with a number of statisticians and some other colleagues to try to find a way to do this that does not uh, prejudice the measure of equity by focusing um, on a particular set of contents that really can only be understood within a given sample and in a different place in a given time. So what I'm suggesting here is that I, like I think many people, are very concerned about a push toward a global metric. Uh, if the global metric is in fact a set of contents that is part of the globalization that says that everybody needs to be prepared to work at a, you know, um, at some international banking firm or some Microsoft-type uh, uh, technology entity. As much as that is important, uh, certainly for the middle and upper classes in countries, the kids who don't have bread on the table, uh, their goal is going to be how to get as much as possible to be able to handle the onslaught of information that is coming their way, some of which will help them, some of which probably needs to alert them of and two, things that are not so favorable in the environment. Uh, We have far too many kids, even ones who have made it through primary school who can't read and write effectively, who don't know math. This inefficiency of our education system is, it's really an outrage uh, today. And so I am passionate about it, but there are things that we know that are better and things that we know that will hold us back. And we need to build, I think, on a better science, but the focus of that science on making a difference for those, and to use my labeling, uh, at the bottom of the pyramid. I think that's where I would suggest, um, especially private foundations and organizations that have the resources to think boldly and innovatively and have the human condition
0: at their heart. Well, Dan Wagner, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed today. It really was a pleasure to talk. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to talk. Dan Wagner is professor of education at the University of Pennsylvania. His newest books are Learning as Development and Learning at the Bottom of the Pyramid. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zhong, and Lushik Waba. An original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.